Good evening to you all. Glad you could make it tonight. I'm glad to be here too. And um, we're going to be looking at Romans 2 and 3 tonight. So hang on to your hats, but let's begin with prayer. We thank you, Father, for your, the good day you've given us. And we know that uh, you're with us. And all the truths that we are going to look at tonight are about you, your glory, your justice, your righteousness. Lord, thank you for saving us. And I pray that uh, through the things we're going to learn tonight, Father, the, your word, that we will be encouraged in our own walk with you to rest in the things that you have given us by your spirit through Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, some people coming in the back door. Oh, it's always like this. <laughs> um, I'm just going to do a little review because I always want us to be able to get the flow of the book of Romans. And as I started off saying several weeks ago, uh, we're, we're looking at the, the, uh, the flow of the, of the, um, of the book. What, you know, what is this book all about? Why did Paul write this book? And what is his, his point? And of course, as I said at the beginning, this is all about the people in the church, that this is a diverse church culturally. There are Jewish uh, Christians and there are Gentile Christians, and, uh, and they're in conflict. Not major conflict, but obviously we can see by Romans chapter 14 and 15 that there is, uh, there is some tension between the two groups. And uh, as I said before, this was a major issue all the way through in the early church. In the book of Acts, chapter 15, we see they had a uh, church council on this, discussed among themselves because the earliest Christians were Jewish. They all grew up under the old covenant. They all practiced circumcision and other, um, you know, other uh, things of the law. They they didn't see a distinct difference between following the law of Moses and following Jesus. And then all of a sudden, by God's decision, by the work of the Holy Spirit, God opened up the gospel to the Gentiles through Peter, and then later through other evangelists. And Paul and Barnabas uh, went out on missionary journeys, and they, you know, the, the influx of the Gentiles into the church uh, just absolutely astounded the earliest Christians who are now saying, what do we do with these people? Because they come out of a different background than we do. They don't have an understanding of righteousness the way that we understand righteousness. And how are they going to become righteous if we don't you know, get them under the law, get them circumcised, make them Jews? And, uh, and of course, the decision in Acts chapter 15 was to kind of undercut that concept it was like, we're not going to lay a lot of burdens on the Gentile believers. We're asking them only three things, you know, and two of those had to do with table fellowship. Don't eat uh, things sacrificed to idols. Don't eat things with blood in them and stay away from sexual immorality. You know? So essentially, we can have fellowship with these people and they are included. But this tension existed in the churches and Paul is addressing that issue here in the Roman church. And if you, this is what I meant from the beginning, that if you don't understand that, you're going to miss the message of Romans. Because the message of Romans is how do diverse people who come from different points of view come together as one body 
and respect one another. The other problem that we saw in the book, uh, I mean, in the, in the history of the Church of Romans at Rome was the fact that from 50, uh, 49 AD to 54 AD, the Jews were all expelled from Rome itself by the Caesar, Calig uh, <laughs> Caligula. Yeah, that's it, Caligula. He had expelled them. And uh, he, you know, they had had an internal fight among themselves, probably about Jesus Christ, about the gospel. And so now uh, the Jews are co have come back to Rome. But during their time of absence, Gentile leaders have grown up in the church and have taken places of authority. And uh, more Ju Gentiles have come into the church. And so now it, it might be, and it very likely is, that the Roman church has more Gentile believers than Jewish believers. And so there's this, this tension between them. You know, what constitutes righteousness? What constitutes holy living? And they have totally different points of view. And Paul is writing to them uh, to help them to understand the gospel. And where does righteousness come from? And, of course, we read last week in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, it is, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And as we image, And so when we think about righteousness, we're not thinking about a set of rules, a, a list of commandments. We're talking about what constitutes the character of God, what constitutes the character of Jesus. Because when we get to chapter 8, Paul is going to say that God, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. So it's the character of Jesus, the character of God, that constitutes righteousness. And faith, in this case, is not trying to believe something. It is resting in the faithfulness of God to carry out what he has promised. And so we're looking at this righteousness by faith as being the whole point of the book. How not only do we, are we justified by faith, which we're going to get deeper into tonight, but we're also sanctified by faith. We aren't sanctified by trying hard to be good for God, trying to conform ourselves or reform ourselves to look like Jesus, but resting in the work of the Spirit within us and, and trusting His power to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. There's a great deal of hopelessness in the church today among people who feel like they're never measuring up to what God expects of them. And what they're really saying is the church is teaching me that God has expectations of me that I can't fulfill. Instead of teaching us that God's spirit is within us and he is the power of God, the practical work of God doing in us what we cannot do for ourselves and changing us from, from uh, you know, debts, uh, day by day into the likeness of Jesus. Now, when Paul says that uh, for righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. I, I find that translation just a little bit awkward because I know that, you know, anytime you're taking a language 
uh, and translating into another language, you're recognizing that the translator is making a decision of what it should say in our language. But I prefer the NIV's approach to this, where it says, uh, it's faith from first to last. You know, every day it's about resting in what God in God's faithfulness to perform what he promised. See, it's not just a one-time faith. I believed when I was a child. I put my faith in Jesus, got baptized, and that's all I needed. It's every day I am trusting God. I'm resting in what God has done. From the first breath I took to the last, about now I have. Okay, so this is what this, is what this book is all about. Now, as, as we have already looked at chapter and saying that they have, you know, have, they, instead of believing in the real God, they took God and made an idol out of him, out of, you know, they, they saw themselves above God and they made God into images. And that was a Gentile kind of problem. And then, of course, they had homosexual issues. And that, again, is a Gentile problem. And, and the Jewish uh, believers who are listening to Paul as they're, they're hearing this read, they're saying, yes, that's right, that's right. And then Paul gets into his third section, you know, each time saying, so God gave them over, God gave them over. And the third time he says God gave them over, he starts going into things that were kind of inclusive, not just Gentile kind of issues, but Jewish kinds of issues. And they're beginning to wonder where Paul's going there. And when he gets to chapter 2, he... Um, you know, well, as he ends chapter one, he says, though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Yeah. And so here's kind of where he's at at the end of this first chapter, that the, the Gentiles, the, the nations, not just general Gentiles like Gentiles in Rome, but the nation of Gentiles all over the earth have established cultures that are based on their brokenness. And, and they're not only, you know, they're not only establishing these, but they're, they're, they're approving it. You know, like uh, it's, it's great that we have this kind of, you know, freedom to do whatever we want to do, you know, and we're never evaluating these things based on the real God. And Paul is saying that, and the Jewish believers hearing this are, yay, that's exactly what our, our thoughts are too. And then Paul flips this and starts by saying, therefore you have no excuse, O man. Now, he's going to use a, a as, as I say, Paul is, a, uh, is the apostle to the Gentiles. But he's been trained as a rabbi under Gamaliel who is uh, part of the Sanhedrin. So he has got the rabbinical thinking inside of him, and he's also got the Jewish, uh, the Greek, uh, excuse me, the Gentile rhetoric ability at the same time. And so he, right at this moment, he's going to flip into a kind of rhetoric that's called a diatribe. He's going to start answering the questions that his readers are thinking about. He says, so he's using the concept, oh man, I've, I've, you know, I'm taking the whole group of you and winning you down to one person. Now listen as I talk to that one person. So what does he say? Therefore, you have no excuse, oh man. Every one of you who judges, 
Uh, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Oh. Now, over here, the cheering section has quieted down because now he's talking to them, too. You doing, you're doing the very same things. On the day of judgment, the counsel for the prosecution will be me. The things that I judged other people on, I'm going to get judged on. Whoa! You know, didn't, Jesus said something about that, didn't he? You know, remember Paul, you know, a lot of times we think about Paul as being very separate from Jesus, but Paul reflects Jesus' words really well. And so he's, he's saying there, you know what? Uh, we, all do, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. We know that. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Mm. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Okay, um, let me finish this section, and then I'll come back. But because of your hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, there's some really interesting things that he says here. And he's speaking again to the Jewish people. And he's, he's, he's making it clear to them that God is having kindness. This, this, whole, this whole approach of God is that he's having kindness on them. He's having mercy on them, giving them time to repent. It, it's not just that he's preaching hopelessness. Like, oh, it's, it's, there's no hope. God's going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. We're all doomed, gloom and despair. He's, no, he's just saying, God is giving you time to repent. And, uh, and, uh, and yet at the same time, your hearts, the Jewish hearts, are, what's the words he used in verse 5? Hard and impertinent heart. Now, it's hard to catch this in English because, of course, we're, you know, we are removed from the language that Paul is using there. But the words that he's using there come from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint. And when he uses these words, he's using two words here, which translate stubbornness or hardness and in unrepentant uh, or impenitent, you know, English words, you know how it goes. These, this word hardness, hard and impertinent, are always used in the Old Testament to refer to idolatry. He says, you've got idols in your heart. And, uh, and your idol is the keeping of the law. Okay? You have made keeping the law an idol. As if this was what brings you closer to God. You're making a bargain with God. And, uh, and at the same time, you're doing the very things that you're judging other people for doing. He will render to each one according to his works, verse eight, uh, 6. Excuse me. He will render to each one according to his works 
to those who by patient and well-doing seek to, for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, that sounds like a contradiction, like Paul suddenly saying that, hey, you know, if you, if you do good works, you're going to get rewarded and, you know, and all that stuff. Uh, but that's not what Paul's doing. I said, remember, he's a rabbi. Uh, he's been tra trained as a rabbi as well as a, a rhetorical. He is actually at this moment quoting Psalm 62. And, uh, and his Jewish readers will know that. If you turn to Psalm 62, you'll notice something here. Um, that, that David is saying, for, my, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Now, in other words, Paul, uh, David is saying, I rest in the Lord. And my salvation is going to come from him. But notice down in verse 12. At the very end of the psalm, he says, well, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that the power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his works. Well, what is he saying here? Well, if you go back to the Psalms, you, you understand that David is making a di difference between those, him who has rested in the Lord and those who are striving against him. He said, they are, they're going to get rewarded for their, uh, what the evil that they're doing. But me, I'm resting in the Lord. Okay? And when he comes to Rome, when Paul comes to writing Romans, he's saying, you know, remember that Psalm? So to speak, I mean, this is very typical of Jewish learning. Remember that? He starts quoting the psalm, and people automatically know what he's talking about. You know? Um, he will render to each one according to his works. If you are um, judging other people but doing the very things that they're doing, you will be judged for that. You will be rendered. God will render you according to your works. But those who wait patient, those who rest in the Lord... Um, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now, the verses I just read from verse 6 to verse 11. Just, just a little aside here is what they, we call a, a chiasm. I hope I said that right. Chiasm. You know, it, it, it's, kind of a, it's kind of like I make a statement, I make a second statement, I make a third statement, I make that third statement a second time, then I go to the second statement and say it again, and then I go to the first statement and I said it. You know, so it's kind of like a little curve here. I, I back to where I started. But the thing that I want to, you to understand here is that he's talking about God's impartiality. That God isn't looking at the Jew and saying, I'm giving you a pass because you have the law. And the Gentiles, I am judging more harshly. He's saying, I am impartial. 
My judgments will fall upon people who reject my righteousness, reject my salvation, who are self-seeking. And even though you go to church or you go to the synagogue and you do righteous things, if you are out of step with me and out of step with my righteousness, judgment will fall upon you. And, and, and as, as many people have said, uh, you know, you can say the same thing about Christians because there's people who are churchgoers, but they're not really Christians. And so they come to church because they get comfort out of it, because they get social life out of it, because they get moral affirmation from it, because their kids are uh, schooled in, in ethics and things like that, but they go out and they live a totally uh, a separate life from God. God to them is just an ideal. He's not real. And, uh, and so Paul is essentially saying, God knows all this. Now, it's really interesting that when he gets to verse 12, he is, um, you know, he's, he's kind of, like I said, he's talking to the Jews. He, it's, it's almost like uh, he's got to really bring this home to them. For all have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when, gent for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law require. They are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Now, all of that sounds confusing, okay? But it's not confusing. Paul is merely making it clear to those people that, you know, sometimes we are, you know, we are going by our name tags. You know, my name tag says, I'm a Jew, therefore, I'm good. And yet I meet people who are not, doesn't have the name tag, in this case Gentiles, and they're doing good, even without the law. How does that compute? I mean, if people who are not even Jews are doing good, this comes back to the old question because you, you, you see this all the time. People say, well, is God going to judge the people who have been good, who haven't put their faith in Jesus Christ? You know, like there, there's people out there who are doing good and everything like that. No, uh, th this, is, this is where our confusion comes in because we're looking at good works and we're saying good works, that proves that I am... I'm good and deserve God's blessing. And God says, no, I know the secret things of your heart. And it's not just, you know, the, uh, it's not just your proclamation that you're a Jew that gives you standing before God. It is the fact that, uh, you know, your hearts are not turned towards me and I'm aware of it. And there are Gentile people who are 
acting out of good conscience, doing good things too. But everybody is going to be judged the same way because God knows the secrets of their heart. And it's easy for the Gentile, Jewish people who are hearing Paul say this to say, well, you're just talking about a category of Jews that are hypocrites. They're Jews in name only. Okay? You know, I mean, yes, they, they got the title Jew, but they're really not pious Jews. And Paul says, oh, really? You think I'm just talking about the people who, you know, are, 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 are acting like they got religion, so to speak? Uh, let, me, let me take this further. Verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the, God, uh, the, the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent. Now, notice he's saying a lot of positive things. There's, there's actually 11 pious claims he makes here. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in the Lord and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you, can, if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of the children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? No. Uh, like I said, he just said a lot of things. Here's the pious Jew the ones who have come to faith and they've followed Moses. They're kind of like the rich young ruler who came and found Jesus in Matthew, I mean Mark chapter 10 and said, what do I need to inherit eternal life? And, God, and Jesus says, what does the law say? You know, do not murder, do not steal, honor your father and mother. He says, all these things I've done since I was a small boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. And what did he say to him? Go and sell all you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And the man went away sad because he had many riches. Uh, what is that? What was that all about? Jesus was exposing his heart. What is he exposing in his heart? That he was breaking the tenth commandment. Okay, what's the tenth commandment? Thou shalt not covet. And he says, well, I have enough, so I don't need to covet anybody else's. Okay, well, give it away then. Because coveting is essentially greed. So don't be greedy. Share what you have. I mean, don't covet anybody else's and don't hold on to yours like you own it. Give it away and come follow me and I can't do it. And that's what Jesus is saying, and Paul is essentially saying here as he asks these questions. You got, you're all saying you're pious, and, you're, and, and this is, you know, you, you've kind of got a, a level of righteousness that gives you a standing above the Gentiles who have come into the church, and, uh, and yet at the same time, are you listening to what you're saying? Uh, what, is he, what does he ask next? When you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Now, we know this goes on among ourselves. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? That's a really interesting one, by the way. And, and, and many commentators miss the point of that. Uh, I mean, um, 
What does it mean to rob temples? So you mean they slipped in at night and kind of took off with the, uh, you know, the idol off its platform, you know? Is that what they... No, he's not talking about that. Something that was very well known in that day is not known today is that the temples, the pagan temples of Roman and Greek or, uh, uh, were banks. This is where they kept money. They stored it in the temples, and the priest loaned it out, gave credit, and people come back to it. So what is, he, what is he saying? The Jews who are absolutely abhor idols, you know, so much so that we can't eat meat offered to idols. That's a very pious kind of thing that comes up in Romans chapter uh, 14. Yet I will go and take advantage of the banking system at the temple and enrich myself by it. I'm robbing temples, essentially. And, uh, and then what else does he say? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of the Lord God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Um, I don't want you to miss something here that that um, that that's very integral to the the whole of the argument here because Paul isn't done with what he's saying yet. Okay, this is why we're doing these two chapters together because where Paul is going with this is all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. It's not just he's not just beating up on people. He's he's helping them to come to grips with something that they have to get a grip on. That, you know, if we are looking at the Gentiles among us and we are judging them because they don't come from our background and they lack the spiritual education that we got under the law of Moses and they lack the, you know, the grounding in the, the law that kind of leads us to righteousness Paul is saying it didn't lead us to righteousness. Okay? Now, he's speaking as a Jew. He's not just speaking as somebody who is... But he's, but, but he's making it clear to them that this kind of... Be, all the things that we know, yes, there's people among us that maybe are doing better than others, but, as, but overall, the fact of the matter is that none of us are doing well enough. So, you know, it, it's kind of like we created a hierarchy. And it's a false hierarchy. It's like, uh, you know, swimming from California to Japan. And uh, the first guy sets out, and he gets about 100 yards off the shore, and he drowns. The second guy sets off, and he gets three miles out, and he drowns. But the third guy is really good, and he swims for 50 miles, and he drowns. And although... One got 50 miles, one got three miles, and one only got 100 yards. They all drowned. Okay. None of them had the ability to make it all the way. You know? And this is, of course, Paul's point. You're sitting here and you're looking at other people and you're saying, they don't deserve to be considered righteous, or they may never become righteous, or they are, uh, you know, we are superior race because they came out of idolatry and Paul is saying, well, you have idols too because you're looking horizontally about righteousness 
instead of vertical. And you're looking at the law and saying, this is the nature of how we become holy. And this runs contrary to the gospel that Paul is proclaiming. Now, verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man is uncircumcised and keeps the law, precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. In other words, you know, you're looking at these people and they're not circumcised, all these uncircumcised Gentiles. But they're keeping the law naturally. Uh, and, and among you, you've got people and maybe yourself that are not keeping the law. And here's the, here's the truth about the law. If you break one law, you've broken it all. Nobody's that good. And so you're looking at them and saying, well, they're, they're breaking the law, but we are breaking the law. And therefore, we can't judge their uncircumcision by our circumcision because, you know what? Uh, for, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision uh, out, uh, outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. A, it, here is part of Paul's overall understanding of the gospel. And the reason why he did not require Gentiles to be circumcised. Because he recognized that physical circumcision was not what God was asking of people, but circumcision of their heart. It was a spiritual act by God, not by the human beings. And now, um, I'm going to be indelicate for a minute, okay? Um, because circumcision was given to Abraham, and the Jews carried it on into their own uh, covenant with God. But the thing about circumcision is, Okay, hmm, I'm going to be indelicate. Uh, when you made a covenant with God, and this is all about covenant, uh, when you made a covenant with God, there was demonstrations that, of what would happen if you broke the covenant. Okay? In um, Genesis chapter 15... Uh, God tells Abraham that he's going to make the covenant again with him that he made in Genesis chapter 12. And he tells him, he gets these animals and he cuts them in half and lays them on both sides of the path, so to speak. And the idea of doing this is that the two people who are making covenant will walk on this bloody path between all these dead animals. And the dead animals demonstrated what happens to us if we break the covenant. Okay? You know, in other words, we're going to be like these dead animals. 
It wasn't just a matter of making a sacrifice. It was a demonstration of what would happen. Circumcision is exactly the same thing. It was a demonstration of what would be happening to you, you male parts of the covenant, if you broke covenant. Okay, it was a sacrifice, so to speak. God would cut you off. Okay, I said I was being indelicate. Okay, but it's really important to understand that because the Jews are looking at this and saying everybody needs to be in the covenant the way we're in the covenant. And, God, and Paul is saying no. The covenant that God has now got us in is not about circumcision of the flesh. It's about circumcision of the heart. And you see, when you Jews don't keep up your end of the covenant because you don't and break the laws, and these laws that we're talking about are stealing, robbing the temples, adultery, are things that your neighbors are seeing, what does that do to your testimony about God? And you're sitting here looking at the Gentiles and saying, well, they don't understand righteousness, but we're not even demonstrating righteousness as a people. Then we're in chapter 3. Are we okay? Everybody understanding what I'm talking about here? Okay. So Paul's conclusion is he's coming here. I mean, he's almost to the end of his uh, diatribe here, but he's not quite finished with it. What then has the advantage? Uh, what... Then what is the advantage? Ah, let me try it again. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? In other words, now let me answer questions, and he's going to do this much more in depth in chapter 9. But let me answer some more questions that you guys are probably wondering about right now. If there, is there any advantage then to being a Jew? I mean, what was this circumcision all about? Much in every way. Okay, I'm not throwing this away. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with God, the oracles of God. Now, he is, again, he's going to fully answer this in chapter 9, 10, and 11. But right this moment, he is saying something we need to pay attention to. He says, the Jews were entrusted with the oracle of God. That means that God was the one who revealed himself through the Jews to all the other nations. And that key word there is entrusted. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? You know, all of those words, entrusted, faithfulness, faithlessness, all have the same root. He said, to begin with, the Jews were faith with the oracles of God. What if some were faithless? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now, is God's plan undermined by their behavior? By no means. Let God be true. Uh, though everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Um, Again, he's quoting the Old Testament. And, uh, and by the way, he's quoting Psalm 51 when David is confessing his sin. 
before God, against you and you only have I sinned, Lord. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And, uh, and in that psalm, David says uh, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. This is the work of God to call the faithless people who are under his covenant to judgment. And, uh, and so here you are, you have been faithless, but God is faithful. That's the one characteristics of the covenants that always is true, that God is faithful to his covenant even though all the people he makes covenant with are not faithful. Isn't it interesting? I, I've always found this fascinating because, uh, you know, uh, as one of the things I say about covenant making is that God did not or was not compelled by anybody to make covenant. You know, nobody came to God and said, you've got to make covenant with me. God chose to make covenant with people who he knew would not keep up their end of the covenant. When you entered into covenant with God through Jesus Christ, this is what we call the new covenant. When you entered into covenant with God, God already knew ahead of time that you would not be able to hold up your end of the covenant. You would be unfaithful. Everyone who belongs to the covenant has been unfaithful at some time or another. So God isn't ending covenant just because they're unfaithful. He's not saying, we're done. Because he would be done with everybody. And Paul is essentially saying the same thing here. Here, you Jews, you, you know, God entrusted you with the oracles, the, the, the written law, the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the chosen people, and you were unfaithful, but God is faithful. And the, you know, so he always continues to keep up his covenant because covenant is not based on, you know, based on my good behavior. It's based on God's faithfulness. This is why we are not out of covenant. This is one of the key reasons why, you know, I believe in what we call eternal security. I don't like that terminology, the preservation of the saints, whatever you want to say. The fact of the matter is the reason why we do not lose our salvation is because God's faithful to his covenant. Because every single person fails in the covenant and God in this covenant, this covenant that we're talking about, has approached holiness, righteousness in a different way by giving us the Spirit. Now, he's going to get to that in just a minute, but let me go on here. Um, Paul is still in his diatribe, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Again, this is a question that's coming from his audience, and you, you, you see the absurdity Paul is not only having a diatribe against good arguments, but he's even having a diatribe against bad arguments, absurd arguments. This is absurdity, you know? Uh, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. For if, then how could God judge the world? Here's another absurdity. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Now, one more thing. Because this last, this last statement is really, really important. Um, 
One more thing here. That Paul, and he will say that, uh, and why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. One of the accusations against Paul that he constantly is dealing with in a number of his letters is that he's being accused of being against obedience. Like, you know, you don't believe in any kind of logic. People can live any way they want to. You know, you see this in the Corinth letter, for example. Uh, you know, Paul establishes church, and what is their, what becomes their motto? You know, because of grace, I can do anything. Okay? And, and it's kind of like, well, yes, that is something like what I said, but that's not exactly what I said. You know, I'm not saying that God is okay with us living unrighteously, that it's inevitable that we're going to live unrighteously, so we might as well just do it, and God will get the glory because he'll save us anyway, because he's faithful and we're unfaithful, because we all know we're unfaithful. So, so since we can't lose our salvation, let's just go live any way we want to, because that seems to be what God, what, you know, God wants us to do. And Paul is saying, that's not what I'm arguing here. I just want you to understand how absurd this whole thing is. I know people have said this about me, but that is not what I'm arguing here because I believe in obedience. It's just that obedience does not come first. Transformation comes first. And transformation is God's work in us. And if we are not transformed, then we will not become obedient. So therefore... Let's not get into the obedience model and look and say, here's the rules, keep the rules, and therefore you'll be holy. He said, we are not, that is not living by faith. There is a righteousness that comes by faith, and he's going to, you know, we're going to come to that. That's apart from the law. But you, Jews, you, we have been living like righteousness is coming through the law. And that's not the purpose of the law. The law wasn't there to show us that this is the way of righteousness. It, it was there to show us how unable we were to be holy for God. And, he'll, and that's why he goes into the next section where he says, uh, what then? Are the Jews better off? Not, uh, no, not at all. For we've already charged that, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. And now what he does is he switches over to the Old Testament and he does something that we call a midrash. He piles verse upon verse that are related verses to show that all have sinned. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They, uh, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now he's not quite done. 
But what he has done in these particular, this particular passage is he has been quoting various parts of the Old Testament. He's quoted a lot of things from the wisdom section and also from the prophets. And then he's going to reference the law just below there. And what he's doing is he's saying the whole Old Testament's argument says to us that we're all sinners. Not just the Gentiles but also the Jews. And why do we need to know that? Because if we do not understand this, then we will make an assumption that we have, as Jews, had a leg up. That we had an advantage. When in reality, by having the law... We are under greater condemnation because we had greater knowledge. See, the Gentiles didn't have this advantage, if we want to say it as advantage. They didn't know that they were sinning against the holy God until Christ came and we proclaimed the gospel. But we Jews, we knew. We knew we were doing this. And, and as we read the Old Testament, as we absorb it in, we can't miss the fact that all through the Old Testament, we're being reminded how feeble we were at keeping the law. And even when we would repent, uh, we would go back to breaking the law. And even after God had to send us out of our nation into exile, when we came back, we didn't fall back into idolatry, but we made an idol of the law itself. Now, how do we know that to be true? Because it's after, if you look at the uh, prophets, especially uh, the ones that were prophesying after the return, Nehemiah, Ezra, uh, Micah, Nahum, if you look at them, what, do you, what you'll notice is that Israel stops building uh, idols they stopped following the old idols. This idolatry was what got them in trouble. But after they come back is when there was a rise in the focus on the law. And synagogues came into existence after returning from Babylonian captivity. In other words, there was no synagogues before that. Everybody came to the temple and did their sacrifices. But there's a rise up of the rabbinical teaching of the law, and so everybody became enamored with the law, really focused on the law, and that became the line by which they determined uh, how God wanted them to live. Now, we're back to Jesus here at this point, because what was, you know, who were the people who mostly pushed Jesus on the law? The Pharisees. And remember, Paul was a Pharisee before he was a believer. So he understands exactly what he's talking about here, that the Pharisees were the ones who opposed Jesus because they didn't think he was holy enough. And they held everyone to a very high standard that they could not keep themselves. But if you... If you do a study on the Pharisees in that period of time, what you'll discover is that although the Pharisees were actually a very small group of people, probably five to 6,000 
people were considered Pharisees, most of the people of Israel were considered to have not been worthy. And they were therefore condemned by God. But the Pharisees thought this way. And, uh, and they weren't alone because there was other groups like the Essenes that felt the same way. The people aren't keeping the law, therefore, you know, I mean, here it's, it's kind of like the, uh, you know, the, the manger scene we have so often with children coming up and you have the shepherds coming in and ooing and eyeing over the, over the child. Do you know that shepherds were considered so unclean that they could not even give testimony in a court of law? In Israel in that day. That's how unclean they were. Fishermen? You know? And here comes Jesus. And he's proclaiming the mercy and grace of God upon who? The people that the Pharisees rejected. As unworthy. And Paul is coming back and saying... This is, the, this, is the, this is what we need to see about ourselves. That we are sitting, we're sitting here on judgment upon the Gentiles. When I was talking about the Gentiles, you were all excited about that. But as soon as I began to talk about us, we got a little bit quiet here. Because what we are doing is bringing disrepute upon the testimony of God. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For the works of the law, no human being, for, <clears throat> excuse me, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Okay. I'm looking at the, the clock here and I realize that I'm not going to be able to finish this chapter. Um, so when we come back next time, we'll pick it up in verse 21. But let me bring some concluding thoughts here because I always say, what does the original readers understand Paul to say? We pr pretty much have hammered on that. Um, but, it's, but clearly Paul is... Uh, saying to the original readers that all are under the condemnation of sin and that no one has an advantage with God, whether Jew or Gentile, when it comes to being righteous. There is just no advantage. And that what he will conclude in the rest of this chapter, is, uh, which we'll cover next time we're together, Every Jew and Gentile who put their faith in Jesus is justified and receives righteousness. Receives righteousness. Doesn't, okay, doesn't work for righteousness, or, uh, but receives it. It is a gift from God. So what does this mean for us? Um, Well, number one, our sin is just as worthy of condemnation as those we caustically judge. Self-righteousness creates blindness towards personal sin for the religious. We need to, be, to humbly take this to heart and feel compassion for our fellow sinners. Um, I could give a lot of illustrations to that, but 
You know, I know that, you know, we're, we live in a culture today that sometimes feels very alien to Christianity. And we look at these people who are proclaiming this and proclaiming that and asking, you know, pushing for rights and for, for behavior that in the past was, you know, morally depraved, but today is considered morally acceptable. And we are tempted to hate these people. We definitely want God's judgment upon them. And we need to understand from what Paul is saying here that we're just like them. We are sinners. Yeah? Not just there for the grace of God, go I, but there go I. That is me. I am a sinner. They are a sinner. And except for the gospel of God and the work of his spirit, I would not be included. But God has done this. And I should have compassion on these people who have not yet come to that understanding. Um, I, I think you know, this, is, this is such an important part of being a believer. Because if we don't count ourselves, I hear the thunder, God's coming after me. If we don't count ourselves among the community of the sinner, we will not consider the community as a member of humanity. We have to say, all of us, we're lost, are lost, and only are found by the grace and mercy of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm done for tonight. Sorry, I couldn't finish the whole cha uh, chapter there. Uh, get caught up in the things I'm saying. Sorry about that. Any questions before we uh, say goodbye tonight? You're a very strange group of people. Nobody ever asked me any questions, you know. That's... Well, it's good to be with you tonight. I'll see you next Wednesday night. We'll pick up on chapter 3 and go on into chapter 4. Okay, you're welcome.